Ladies and gentlemen, start your stopwatches because you're listening to the dispatches on the clock, and that means we're going to spend the next 15 minutes or less... Okay, so we're actually going to need to take more than 15 minutes today. We're going to have to spend about 30 minutes or so discussing and unpacking today's topic because we're going to be talking about the falsehoods, superficialities and glaring contradictions found in David Seymour's 2023 State of the Nation speech. Well, it's an election year, and what that means is there's lots of electioneering going on, and David Seymour kicked things off in earnest uh, a couple of days ago with his State of the Nation speech called The Road to Real Change. Uh, You can see the full speech on the ACT Party website. I don't want to read you the whole thing, but I just want to highlight some aspects of it, key sentences and statements that he made to really uh, unpack, I think, the frustrating superficiality, uh, dishonesty, and even contradictory nature of uh, David Seymour and his tenure in New Zealand politics. Now, there's no doubting that David Seymour has attracted a following, and one of the reasons why is because he is actually quite a clever little communicator. Uh, It's frustrating there's not more substance and depth behind it. Ironically, He is quite similar to Ardern in this regard. He has the ability to create and to spit out these memorable little one-liners, these uh, glib comments, these satirical comments, uh, the use of alliteration, all that kind of stuff. If you can do that well in the modern age where we tend not to think too deeply in the modern communications era where a lot of it is about these short Uh, sloganeering type snapshots of the world, if you can do that well, then you will attract a following. He's also very reactionary at a time where we have a couple of things going on that are working in his favour. One is we have a government that just has not done a particularly good job. It doesn't matter whether you are supportive of the Labour Party or not, they just haven't functioned well. They have not been good stewards, good responsible leaders of the country, and that's even if you agree with their ideology. You can point to so many things where they just haven't Uh, performed well in the job and so that's always going to be beneficial to politicians who are reactionary primarily in nature and secondly on top of that what's also I think aided Seymour in a big way is the fact that the National Party seems to have lost its philosophical grounding and it's had a succession of leaders that either haven't really stood for much uh, or don't really know how to enunciate properly what the principles and philosophies guiding their decision-making actually are. And so here comes a guy, he's very good at uh, memorable moments of communication, he's reactionary, and he is presenting himself as a counter to the two big parties. So, of course, he's always going to flourish and do well in the midst of that. But earlier this week, he gives his State of the Nation speech And in that speech, it really exposes why someone like me, and I think why a lot of people actually could never bring themselves to vote for David Seymour. So let's start actually working our way through it and having a look at some of the more noteworthy comments that he made. Uh, Remember this point, because we're going to come back to it. He said this, That's part of the reason we're in this mess, after diagnosing the mess that he believes we're in. National governments don't actually oppose Labour 
policies. They just want to manage them. And they always find big government feels better from the back of a ministerial limo. That's uh, one of those moments of memorable communication that I was telling you about. It's a little line that sticks in your head. And uh, there's a certain truth to all of this, right? This is power. Power corrupts absolutely. It corrupts everyone who gets close to it. Uh, you have to fight hard against that corruption. Uh, it, it's, it's a temptation for everybody. But here's the funny thing, the irony in all of this. Uh, David Seymour and his libertarianism also ends up leaving the country with lots of excess uh, overbloated and big government because libertarianism strips the individual from community, from family, what's of primary importance, the primary unit, if you like, in society is the autonomous self-choosing individual. Government exists to maximise the freedom of all those individuals. And guess what? In order to maximise all that freedom uh, and in order to maintain a, a basic uh, level of existence in society for everybody, if they're all going to act like individuals, you need a huge government that has to step in and do all the things that families and local communities used to do. So uh, let's not pretend that this is not a problem that his libertarianism ideology also creates in a, in a big way uh, for New Zealand. But remember that key point where he has accused National of not actually opposing Labour policies, just basically adopting them. He makes that point several times in his speech. We're going to come back to that in a big way in just a moment. He goes on to say this, The central cause of our troubles is that successive governments have abandoned the values of progress. Well, what does that actually mean? What, what are the values of progress? He goes on to state uh, and talk about the Enlightenment. We'll talk about that in just a second. He claims that the Enlightenment values are values of progress. But what exactly are the values of progress? And I, I, I don't think that's even a fair critique, is it? It's pretty superficial when you think about the history of governance in New Zealand and different parties. And they've all progressed some things in, in, in some way. Uh, and things that uh, are certain things that even this inept Labour government, you have to say there's certain things that they've done which are beneficial. Um, other things that they have engaged in are not at all. But I, I think that's a very throwaway, trite, and uh, superficial, meaningless statement to make. I'm not even sure what you mean by the values of progress. I don't think there is such a thing, actually. Uh, he goes on to say this, Once upon a time, rulers placed little or no value in a person. People were simply fodder for the doctrine of the church or the king who got his powers from God. It was best if they couldn't read and didn't ask too many questions. Now, this is classic historical falsehood being espoused by a guy who then goes on to claim that enlightenment values are the answer to everything. And whatever critiques, sorry, we would want to make of the enlightenment, and there's plenty of critiques we should and would make of uh, enlightenment ideology, one thing you can't accuse them of is not prioritizing reason. And so here's a guy claiming that he values the enlightenment and it's the values that we should all be looking to, and he can't even reason properly about the basics of history. Instead, here he is espousing a complete falsehood, a myth. No, the world was not living in some dark, diabolical dungeon of psychological, mental uh, employment, living uh, imprisonment and darkness that was suddenly, uh, you know, we were all unshackled from because of the Enlightenment. No, that is absolutely uh, not true 
at all. In fact, the person was one thing that you could say well before the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment thinkers actually, one of their big problems is they take fundamental doctrines of Christianity like the inherent value of every single human person because we are made in the image of God and therefore we have moral equality. And this idea is espoused by St. Paul in his writings. You know, there is no Jew or Gentile, no woman or man, no slave or free. All are one in Christ Jesus. Uh, A couple of times you read this very same point about moral equality of human persons. We are sacred image bearers. That's not an idea that the Enlightenment made up. No, it simply isn't. And so the idea that there was no value in personhood is just... Was just garbage. He goes on to say this, the Enlightenment changed all of that. Well, no, it actually didn't. Descartes said, je penais à laws je suis, and apologies to the French speakers for me butchering your language there. If you think, then you are. It's that simple. We all matter because we're all capable of thinking for ourselves. Well, first of all, this again is a complete failure of reasoning because in actual fact, that's not what Descartes was referring to. When Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, he's answering the question, how do I know that I actually exist? And if you ask yourself the question, how do I know that I actually exist? Then you're thinking. And if you think, then you have to exist. If you didn't exist, you wouldn't be able to think, you wouldn't be able to ask yourself that question. That's what Descartes is actually doing there. But secondly, what do you mean we all matter because we're all capable of thinking for ourselves? In actual fact, a lot of people can't think for themselves. We all go through periods in our lives where we maybe stop thinking for ourselves for whatever reason, but we still have value. Even people who can't think for themselves still have value. We don't have value simply because we have the potential uh, within us as human beings to actually think for ourselves, to reason. Yeah, that's a a truly frightening vision of reality. Uh, He goes on to say this, Galileo looked through his telescope and saw Jupiter's moons. The church could threaten him all they liked. They might have thought he was an arrogant prick, but their word of God collided with reality. Sounds like someone else I know. So here he is having another one of his customary digs at Jacinda Ardern. But the problem is that, again, he's showing that he doesn't actually understand real history. The Galileo affair was not a case of the science versus the religionists who were tyrannically trying to destroy the science. That's not true at all. A lot of priests during that era, a lot of highly respected scientists also accepted the Copernican theory about the universe as opposed to the Ptolemaic. And there were other respected scientists and clerics who went with the Ptolemaic. The whole point was there wasn't actually a an empirical case, a strong empirical body of evidence to show that the Copernican theory was correct. It turned out to be that way, but at the time it wasn't. And Galileo, when he got in trouble, didn't have the empirical evidence. In fact, some of the things he said we know are just laughably false. The idea that uh, you know the waves on the ocean are caused by uh, the, the rotations of the Earth. That, that, that is, that we laugh. We would laugh at something like that today. That's what Galileo thought, though, right? That's not what was going on. Instead, the Galileo affair involves an incident where you've got a guy who's promised not to do this and then subsequently does do something that he promised officials not to do, which was to make these bold declarative statements about how the Copernican theory was absolutely true. And he didn't actually have proof and backing for this. And remember, a lot of clerics, a lot of uh, respected scientists of the day also uh, were favourable to the Copernican theory over the Ptolemaic theory. And on top of that, he did it in the worst possible way that he could. He deliberately provoked 
antagonized and ridiculed people for not believing his theory about the state of the world, the universe. And so one of the things he does is he writes a dialogue and he creates a character, Simplicio. It's basically, it means the simpleton. First thing is he writes his his dialogue in Italian, his uh, treaties, if you like, uh, trying to defend his position in Italian instead of Latin. Straight away, that was deliberately provocative. He knew that, and it was deliberately provocative. Uh, secondly, what he does is, and I know it's hard for us to, today to appreciate some of this stuff because we don't think the same way anymore, but during that period, you've got to understand you know, that he was doing stuff that was deliberately provocative. He also creates this character in the dialogue called The Simpleton, and you'll never guess what. The Simpleton, the absolute idiot, is the guy who believes in the Ptolemaic uh, theory about the universe. Now, remember at this stage, Galileo doesn't have the empirical evidence to um, to back up, to strongly uh, uh, bolster and, and make sure that his case is, is basically irrefutable in the face of the Ptolemaic case at all. And yet what he does is he turns everyone, even respected scientists who hold the, the Ptolemaic theory, he turns them into absolute idiots that he ridicules in one of the most offensive ways possible that he could at the time. And so he's put on trial for doing these things. But he's not, it's not religion versus science at all. There's lots of priests who also agree that the Copernican theory is the right one. There are lots of respected scientists at the time. There's lots of science going on at the time. And as for him being put on trial, well, his so-called prison while he's on trial is a, um, a room overlooking the Vatican Gardens in a hotel where he's got a servant and everything provided to him. Uh, and his eventual punishment, uh, he's actually given a, a form of house arrest uh, in a nice villa where he lives. And uh, while he's under this uh, censure, he actually crafts the robust version of his argument, which actually makes the case based on substantive evidences. That's the Galileo incident. But here we have Seymour presenting it in the simplistic false myth. And that false myth came to us courtesy of the Enlightenment. It's really on the back of the Enlightenment that this happens. This myth is promoted uh, by guys like Voltaire who want to create this hostile war between the church and between science. And here Seymour is repeating it as if it is somehow the reasoned, irrefutable truth of history. He's actually doing something really unreasoned here. Uh, he says, The treaty was written in the shadow of the Enlightenment. It said that the government had uh, kawanatanga, uh, the right to govern. The people had tino rangatiratanga, or self-determination, over our lives and property. They also had na tikanga katoa rititahi, uh, the same rights and duties as each other. Store this away also in your memory backs because we're going to come back to this point uh, because, yeah, he contradicts himself in, in a couple of moments' time after making this point. It's difficult to overstate what the Enlightenment has meant. It's not only freed people around the world from violence, hunger, and oppression, it's freed people to live twice as long. Well, I would argue, in actual fact, you're confusing the Enlightenment with scientific advances. And I don't think you have to have the Enlightenment in order to have scientific advances. I think that's a, a case that can you know, people try and make, but I don't think those two things are, um, you know, that, that, that there's a causal link there. I think it's more complex than that. Science was already happening. Science was already progressing. Um, and I think it's this idea here is, I think, is one that is open to, uh, to challenge. Uh, secondly, 
Uh, let's also talk about the fact that uh, the Enlightenment, which gave rise to Enlightenment liberalism, has also created a lot of violence, hunger and oppression around the world. There have been a lot of wars. It feels almost like an endless cycle of wars that have been fought uh, since World War II uh, based on this Enlightenment belief that if you just unshackle the people from tyranny and from the tyrannical dictator, then somehow they will all start reasoning because as the Enlightenment claimed, we are all reasoning individuals and you strip away the uh, corruptions of corrupt society and people will go back to a natural state where they will start reasoning and they will discover all of these wonderful fruits of uh, enlightenment liberalism. Well, guess what? It hasn't worked in a lot of places. It's just claimed untold lives. People killed in those countries, American soldiers killed in those wars, hungers from famine, violence, oppression. And let's not forget that you can also draw a direct line from the Enlightenment to Marxism and the tens of millions of people that were killed as a result of that ideology. Yeah, so let's not overstate the case here. If we're going to talk about the Enlightenment, Let's talk honestly about what the Enlightenment has brought to the world. He goes on to say this, There's no point thinking and evaluating if you can't share your thoughts, but Labour tells us free speech is dangerous and must be cancelled. We know best. ACT is built on the principle that censorship is not the answer. The best antidote to bad ideas isn't to just shout them down, but to debate and defeat them with better ideas. Well, it would be grand if ACT actually believed that. But Seymour, I don't believe he actually does truly have a commitment to that principle. And I'll tell you why, because his voting record uh, in recent years, the last couple of years, shows how disconnected he is. Seymour voted for the safe areas legislation, so-called safe areas legislation. And what that bill did, it did only one thing. And what that bill that he voted for did was it created legislation in New Zealand where you can now create a 300 meter bubble zone. So 150 meters in any direction from the perimeter of an abortion facility. So that's actually more than 300 metres, the bubble, isn't it? By the time you include the actual size of the property that the abortion facility is sitting on. So 150 metres in any direction. If you express yourself about the issue of abortion and you don't even need to speak, it could be silent forms of expression, that would be a criminal act. The criminalisation of freedom of expression is what that bill was about, and he voted for it. No, David Seymour is not Mr. Free Speech. He's Mr. Sometimes Free Speech. He's in favour of certain types of speech. That's the reality of it. Anyone who is truly committed to the notion of free expression, particularly in public spaces, because that's what this bill does, it makes it a criminal offence in public spaces to engage in free expression. Uh, anyone who supports a bill like that is not that committed to the principle of free speech. And that's David Seymour. That's the superficiality, the, the hollow man, the vacuous nature of, of his politics. Uh, he goes on to say this, today we live under new doctrines that look like life pre-enlightenment. Now, that, that, again, that's just false. That is just simply not true. The world we are living in today does not look anything like the world 
pre-enlightenment. It's just not true. He actually goes on to quote some of these doctrines that he thinks are the evil doctrines here. He says, it is more important to follow the new doctrines of privacy, health and safety, and the principles of the treaty than it is to apply your own judgment and take responsibility for a situation. Remember just a moment ago when I told you to park away in your memory the fact that David Seymour was talking about how the treaty was produced in the shadow of the Enlightenment and he was praising these three principles of the treaty? Well, here he is now in this statement, seemingly, well, as far as I can tell, it certainly looks like he's contradicting himself here by talking about how somehow the principles of the treaty are now pre-Enlightenment. So which is it? Are they valuable? Are they important? Were they produced in the shadow of the Enlightenment? Or did they uh, come before the Enlightenment? Because that's what he's saying here, that they did. This is a contradiction. And I'll tell you what, doctrines like privacy, health and safety, no, they weren't pre-Enlightenment ideas at all. Not even close. Not even remotely close. The exact opposite was the case. So yeah, this is just bizarre. So here's a guy who's just saying stuff, I think, to try and appeal in a very reactionary way to people, but there's, there's not much substance to any of this. It's not well-reasoned, and it's coming out the mouth of a man who's claiming that he's all for Enlightenment values, and that's what we need in New Zealand. He goes on to say this, a place, he talks about his vision for New Zealand, as a place where they can be initiated into wider humanity. This is young people uh, through education. A place where they can be initiated into wider humanity, where what they think matters less then whether they think, to which I say, well, is that really true? So what if little Timmy, uh, we take that uh, particular ideological approach with little Timmy, who really starts thinking a lot about German philosophy and about German history, and he falls in love with Nazi ideology, and he thinks that Nazi ideology is the greatest thing ever, and it's just what the world needs more of now, and he allows that to shape his actions. Do you think that uh, actually, in that case, that what he thinks matters less than whether he thinks in that scenario? I don't think he does. Or I don't think it does apply that way at all. I think the exact opposite is true. Uh, probably in that situation, it would be better if little Timmy wasn't thinking rather than thinking and embracing ideologies that are evil as a result. Now, it is important for people to think. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I'm saying here is this is just a superficial slogan that doesn't really have much bearing on the human experience. It's a nice, trite sort of cat poster philosophy which can be easily dissected and... Um, destroyed effectively if you stop to think about the world for just a few seconds and realize, well, it's actually a lot more complicated than this trite one-liner that you're engaging in here. As I said, I think in a lot of ways, Seymour is very much like Ardern in this regard. It is time to recall our Enlightenment values. It, well, no, we don't have Enlightenment values, I guess, in a sense, the way he's trying to say our country wasn't founded on the Enlightenment. Our country is founded on the English tradition, and the English tradition that we are founded on is authentically conservative in nature. And specifically, you've got guys like uh, Burke and Co., Disraeli, etc. They are pushing back against the fruits and effects of the Enlightenment. They take 
a different route. Uh, he says it's time to recommit to a country based on progress. Well, I don't think we've ever not been a country trying to progress somewhere. It's a very Again, it's a trite throwaway line that doesn't really mean anything. It is time to champion a country where each and every person is not fodder for the new doctrines of the woke left, but a thinking and valuing being with the same rights and duties as every other. And look, I agree with you. Uh, where people are not fodder for the new doctrines of the woke left, we'd all like that. But here's the point. The doctrines of the woke left, you can trace the line directly from the Enlightenment to the fruits of the Enlightenment, which were things like Nietzsche and Marx. So Marxism, self-creation, subjectivism. The, the, the woke project is a fruit of the Enlightenment. It is not a, a defect. It is a fruit of the Enlightenment. And this is the thing. So the idea that the Enlightenment is the answer to that is just not correct. It's a problem that requires a much different set of responses. And I would suggest to you that authentic conservatism is the answer to the problem, which would require and which would promote a return to tradition, a return to an objective understanding of the human experience. So you start with the human experience. You don't try and take ideology, ideas, and impose them upon reality. It's a return to the fundamentals of truth and goodness. It is a return to community and to the common good and to the important reality that we are born and brought into existence by community. We only thrive in community. We cannot flourish without community, that we are not radical, autonomous, self-choosing individuals. It is a return to the Judeo-Christian vision of reality. He goes on to say this, the question is, what do we want New Zealand to look like in 10 or 15 years time? After all, that's why we're here. ACT wants to leave this country a better place for our children and those who come after. Again, this is not true, because if this really was what ACT was committed to, there's no way that David Seymour would have championed, and this is his biggest fruit so far in Parliament, his biggest impact has been the passing of legalised assisted suicide and euthanasia in New Zealand, and he wants this law to go even further. He says he has regrets. It wasn't even more extreme than the version he ushered into law. It was his baby. He championed this. This was his pet project. This is the biggest political impact that he has had on our country. And guess what? In 10 to 15 years' time, that very piece of legislation will be being used against vulnerable New Zealanders in all sorts of dystopian ways. That's the future that he's left for us. I, I don't think that he could have ever supported this legislation or championed it if he truly was thinking about the fruit. In fact, he claimed that that was all just slippery slope nonsense that you didn't need to worry about. And then later on, he contradicted himself uh, when he said, well, if a future government wants to change it and, and make it looser and more liberal, then so be it. So yeah, this is not a guy who's thinking about the future of New Zealand. He's thinking about his own libertarian disconnected from reality vision of what he wants to see in the future. He's not thinking about the future good as an, an objective good for the country as a whole. 
And then he goes on to say this. Imagine that before politics, so he's talking about it, and again, another possible vision for the future. Imagine this. Before politicians make new laws, they were forced to ask, what's the problem I'm trying to solve here? What are the alternatives? What could the unintended consequences from this law be? And there's so much to critique David Seymour and the ACT Party here. This is a glaring piece of hypocrisy and contradiction on his part once again. Clearly, he would have never been champion of the End of Life Choices Act if he had asked those three questions. What's the problem I'm trying to solve here? What are the alternatives? And what could the unintended consequences from this law be? In fact, he specifically pushed back and ridiculed those who were trying to answer and explore deeply those three questions in response to his proposed End of Life Choices Act. Hypocrisy. The guy did not ask himself those questions at all. Why is it that he voted for the Abortion Legislation Act 2020? What's the problem I'm trying to solve here? What are the alternatives? What could the unintended consequences from this law be? He never did that. And by the way, in doing that, remember that first statement that he makes that I told you to think about at the the very beginning of this podcast, how he criticized national for being nothing more than a carrier of labour policies. They're just another version of labour. Well, guess what? The Abortion Legislation Act, Jacinda Ardern's pet policy, a Labour Party policy, and he jumped right on in behind, voted in lockstep for it. And not just that, but the follow-up Safe Areas Bill, Labour Policy, he jumps right on in behind it, claiming that he's Mr. Free Speech, Imagine if he'd actually stopped and thought about these three questions that he claimed are fundamental values of act party policy making. What's the problem I'm trying to solve here? What are the alternatives? What could be the unintended consequences from this law? You know what makes this even more absurd? The Law Commission, in its official ministerial briefing paper that it submitted to Parliament about the Abortion Legislation Act, specifically explored the question of safe areas or safe zones. And what it did was it interviewed abortion providers, it talked to various stakeholders involved, and you know what? Not only did they come back with feedback from abortionists who said, we don't actually need this legislation, this isn't a big problem. They also said... And their recommendation was, this actually isn't an issue. It doesn't need to be a law change that's made here in New Zealand. Their recommendation was, we don't recommend doing this. And yet David Seymour voted for it. Well, where was all the questioning about what's the problem I'm trying to solve here? What are the alternatives? Uh, Therefore, is this even necessary? No, he just voted for it. A bill that criminalises free speech from a man who claims to be the champion of free speech. And we really saw too last year during the parliamentary protest, which kicked off uh, one year ago on Monday of this week, that David Seymour was not the champion of the people that he likes to present himself as, the champion of free speech. His initial reaction and response was to attack and to ridicule those who turned up to engage in legitimate acts of expression against the policies that the government was trying to impose upon them. 
He didn't have sympathy for people who had actually been shafted out of their jobs, who had been segregated from their communities, from sports teams, from their churches by this diabolical policy. No, no, no. Only late in the piece did he realise after people started criticising him for jumping in lockstep behind Jacinda Ardern and her Labour Party. Remember, this speech, the very first point that I highlighted to you was him criticising the National Party. The National Party, the reason we're in the, the mess that we're in is because the national governments don't actually oppose Labour policies. And what did we see this time last year? He jumped right in behind the Labour government. And it was only very late in the piece when he realised that this was proving really unpopular and that people were actually criticising him really badly and this could all go horribly wrong for him, that all of a sudden he sort of uh, meekly appeared after, by the way, the likes of Winston Peters, who wasn't even in Parliament, and Rodney Hyde one of the forerunners in the ACT Party, was actually out there amongst the protesters. All of a sudden, Seymour, I think, realised, uh-oh, I've got a PR problem here. No, th this is the superficiality, the contradiction, the falsehood of David Seymour. There's not much substance. It's reactionary. It's probably the worst type of libertarianism. I know serious libertarians. I'm not a libertarian. I think there's lots of problems and critiques that could be made of libertarian ideology. But I know people who are serious, far more serious about it, and have far more substance to their libertarian beliefs than what this guy does. I'm sorry, but this is, uh, this is a politician who is very adept, just like Jacinda Ardern was, at saying the right sounding things at the right time. But beyond that, there's not much more going on here. And when you look deeply into a lot of the ideas that he espouses, they would be absolutely disastrous for this country, for the common good and the well-being of all New Zealanders, not just some. Thanks for tuning in. If you like these episodes and you want to hear more of them, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. $5 or more per month gets you access to an exclusive full-length patrons-only episode of the Dispatches podcast every single week. Don't forget, live by goodness, truth and beauty, not by lies. And I will see you next time on The Dispatches. On the Clock is brought to you by Left Foot Media. Support our important independent media work at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia with just $5 or more per month and you'll receive exclusive access to our full length patrons only episode of The Dispatches podcast every single week. That's Patreon dot com forward slash left foot media link is in the show notes